All right, good morning, Village Church. Good morning, good morning. My name is Michael Fueling, the lead pastor here at the Village Church. And before we jump into the sermon, I want to ask a huge favor. If you are serving this coming week at VBS in any way, shape, or form, would you do me a favor? Would you please stand and then stay standing? Okay, first of all, you all are amazing. Thank you, thank you. Now, no, don't, don't, no, no, Madison, don't sit down. Most people who serve do not want credit, particularly if you're doing it to the glory of God. But I want to take a moment, and I would like to encourage you, and I want to pray for you. You have an incredible opportunity this week. There will be hundreds of kids coming through our doors. Many of them you know because they go to our church, and you get to rub shoulders with them. And particularly, I want you to remember this, these kids look up to you. And for you to give them your undivided attention, it is an unforgettable memory in their souls. But there will be a bunch of kids who come through these doors and they do not know Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. And you have the unbelievable joy to represent Jesus and the gospel to them. It might just be somebody you're passing by. It might be a student in your, in your group. It might be some student who is irritating you to no end and driving you crazy. But I want you just to remember, you have this incredible sacred privilege to steward every single one of these kids. But not just their kids, their moms, who it's mostly all moms dropping them off a couple dads here and there, by and large, mostly moms, love their kids, are ferociously protective of their kids, and you get the joy to show them love by loving on their kids. And so we don't know most of the people who come through the doors, but what a joy and privilege we have to love them and serve them in the name of, of Jesus. So I want to take a moment, I want to pray for you. I'm so thankful for you, and I'm so excited to see what God does because of your faithfulness and keeping everything rooted in the word and the gospel. Amen? Let's pray together. Um, Father, I lift up my brothers and my sisters, these men, women, and students. Thank you that they gave up a week of their life, uh, a really unbelievable amount of time, uh, not just this next week, but even in, in preparation. God, I pray that you would fill each one of us with your Holy Spirit. Like, we know we have the Holy Spirit and we trust in you, but your word says that we need to be filled with the Spirit. Would you give us your eyes to see each child? the ones that irritate us, the ones that are distracting, maybe the ones that have special needs. And I pray, God, that you would give us the ability to see them through your eyes. Lord, that you would give each one of us supernatural patience and your wisdom to respond to circumstances in a way that glorifies you, loves these kids, and loves their parents. Lord, I pray that you would prepare us for really sacred conversations. Would you, would you give each of us leaders at the right moment the courage and the clarity to ask kids if they've ever trusted in Jesus? God, I pray that through the proclamation of your gospel that you would awaken kids to eternal life for the first time, that their entire eternity would be changed because of the investment made. And Lord, we, we have this great privilege and joy, so would you continue to, to bless and empower each one of these leaders as they seek to serve. Lord, would you protect their attitudes? Lord, as the week goes on and we get more tired and irritable and hungry, Lord, you have given us self-control. And so, God, I pray that each and every one of us would rise above exhaustion and would rise above irritation. Lord, would you, would you even create a spirit of unbelievable unity amongst the volunteers and leaders of EBS? 
Uh, Lord, I know there's even some people that are newer to the church and they're just jumping in and, and God, I pray that you would even begin forging in this time um, lifelong friendships where people begin to dig deep roots into their church family here, God. And so Lord, we commit this entire week to you and we are so excited about what you are gonna do. You have a plan. You know exactly what you wanna do. You've actually been working behind the scenes preparing kids and moms and families for this next week. And so we just can't wait to get to the end and see what you had up your sleeve. And we're gonna give you all credit, honor, and glory for that. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. You guys can be seated. Or if you wanna stand during the entire sermon, (laughs) have at it. All right, we're on week three of a series called Worship Music, the month of of July. Uh, We are digging deeper into this subject. Maybe you have not been here in the month of July, and you're thinking, what? We're only doing one song? Don't worry. Um, At the end of the message, that's where we're going to be spending most of our time singing to the Lord and worshiping Him through music in that way. We're also going to do communion at the very end of the service as well, so fret not. All right, we know quite a bit about the worship music of Old Testament Israel. So here's some things that we know. So generally in scripture, there are roughly-ish about 183 songs written and recorded for the people of God. The longest song has 1,732 words. Are you guys grateful that we don't sing that one in church? You can't say yes, because then you're a terrible human, but like, Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible and the longest song in the Bible. The shortest songs have just seven Hebrew words in them, and both are found in the book of 2 Chronicles. Uh, The Bible contains what itself proclaims as the greatest song to ever be written. Anybody know what it is? The Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs. I just wanted somebody to say that out loud in the middle of church. Uh, We don't know at all how it sounded. We don't know its melody, its tempo. We have the words, and the words are incredible, but apparently when you put all of this together, it is the song of all songs. When King David established the temple, there were 38,000 Levites, and the Levites were responsible for for things like uh, music, gatekeepers, guardians, officials, judges, craftsmen, the list goes on and on. Do you know how many of the Levites were musicians? 4,000. About 10.53%, I think that's exactly it, uh, with a couple other numbers after it, about, about 10.5% of all the Levites were musicians. According to First Chronicles, David organized Israel's music ministry. He created leaders, training programs, feeder systems, choirs, orchestras, songwriting teams, and more. It's pretty cool. Now, there's also a ton we don't know about the music of Old Testament Israel. For example, we have zero indication from anything written what the music sounded like. What what most people do is they kind of transfer modern Jewish notions of music onto maybe the Old Testament, but we have no basis to understand that that is real or true. We have no musical notes written to tell us the general melody or flow. Uh, You may or may not be aware of this, but like recording equipment didn't exist two to 4,000 years ago. So we have nothing recorded and we're kind of at a loss for what this music sounded like, how it flowed. We, we actually also don't know how the people sang. For example, some pieces seem to be choral pieces where just the choirs sang and the people sat back and it was more performance-oriented. There seems to be actually like 
response times when maybe a worship leader would sing one thing or a choir and then the people would respond. We think sometimes it seems maybe that the people sang all the songs, but they didn't have the printing press. They didn't have it written down in little nice pamphlets. So they had to have it memorized. And so oftentimes it might have been, we presume, some kind of response. We actually don't know how most of these songs were sung, who sung them, and how it all worked. We also know almost nothing about the vast majority of the instruments that they used. Like, we have these words and modern equivalents, but, like, we do know the shofar. We got that, uh, right? But beyond that, it's actually really, really hard for historians to put an accurate picture together of the kinds of instruments they used, the sounds of those instruments, and even how the choral pieces went together, let alone, or the orchestral pieces, let alone the choir, And when it comes to the worship of the New Testament, we actually don't have a ton more clarity, a tiny bit, but we actually don't know how most of that music actually on the ground sounded. And again, one of the dangers is that we take our notions of worship, music, and culture, and church, and teaching, and we transfer it onto the text, particularly of the New Testament in the first century. Can we just agree that it is probably a very likely reality that the culture of, we'll say, the first century church did things very differently than the way we do them in America, right? And so we have to be a little bit careful by what we transfer onto the text so that we understand these things clearly. Uh, One of my biggest frustrations is, God, why don't you give us more clarity on how they sing, the style of music, the kind of instruments, the melodies, because for 2,000 years, Christians have been fighting about this kind of stuff. Churches have been divided over, and over the last about 400 years in church history, it has only amplified. Literally, churches exist because they broke off of another church only because of the style of music. All right, open up your Bibles, Colossians chapter 3. Verse 16, it starts off like this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Pastor Dean preached on that last week. This week, we're going to focus on the back half of the verse, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, Interestingly enough, Paul writes something almost identical to the church in Ephesus in the book of Ephesians 5.19. He says this, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Every section of scripture, everywhere, it is written to prevent a problem, identify a problem, or fix a problem. Let me say this again. Every section of scripture, it's written to prevent a problem, identify a problem, or fix a problem. And every rule or law is given because someone somewhere has been strongly tempted or has broken that rule. Think about the book of Leviticus and just start thinking about all the really, really weird rules, social laws and rules in that book. All of them are written because someone somewhere was doing something they should not have done. So immediately, here's what I know about the church in Ephesus and the church in Colossae. If there isn't a worship war yet, there soon will be. And so these worship wars, they go all the way back to the first century, even it seems in the churches that the apostles themselves started. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to imagine with me the demographics of a first century church. And there are, generally speaking, three kinds of converts that you're going to find in a first century local church. Here's the first group, the Jews. 
Usually, they were going to be a minority group wherever you were, unless you were in Jerusalem or just outside of Jerusalem. And if I'm being honest, I think the Jews had probably the absolute hardest time of any of the groups we're going to talk about acclimating to new covenant worship. So this, this group of people, they grew up studying the Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament better than you could ever possibly imagine. You take the, the best Old Testament scholar in this room, they would put you to shame by and large. And their songbook, their hymnal, if you will, was the Old Testament Psalms or Psalter. That was their book. And they knew these songs. They knew the melodies. They grew up singing these songs. You know the songs that you remember and you love from when you grew up and how near and dear they are to your heart and they formed you and they shaped you. And every time we sing them, you're just like, it brings you back to this place. That was the Psalms for, for all these Jews. They loved the Psalms. They knew them. They formed them. And, and these Jewish men and women and students and children, they are getting acquainted with a brand new covenant a brand new set of laws and rules that guide and determine how a person worships God. Uh, let me share for you what I think is one of the biggest transitions and challenges these first century Jews had to go through. Under the old covenant, under the old law, they were not allowed to get near the presence of God. The presence of God was bound up in the temple and the Holy of Holies. In fact, the only person who can walk into that Holy of Holies was a high priest once a year after, after much ritual purification. And if he didn't do it right, dead, gone, incinerated. So they're scared. And, and here's what you know. As you get closer, you, you got to be really hesitant and be petrified. In fact, many of you know this from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. It says this about coming near to the temple, to the presence of God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And then later it says, nor let your heart be, don't let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. In fact, here was kind of the teaching. The closer you got to the presence of God, shut your mouth. Lest you say something out of place. You're in the presence of a holy God. Be afraid. That's the old law. Now we have a new law. And the presence of God has left the temple and filled the people. Listen to the book of Hebrews. This is a book written for Jewish converts, helping them understand the new rules because the old rules are gone. And here's what the book of Hebrews says, 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. I'm sorry, what? So you're telling me that I could, I could go to the presence of God, not with hesitance, but with confidence. So what's going to happen when I run to the presence of God, to the throne of God with confidence, says that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You're telling me that when I run to the throne of grace, I don't fall dead because of my sin, but I receive mercy and I receive grace that now I have full access to the presence of God through the blood of Jesus, not just the high priest, but all Christians are functionally priests who have access to God. This is crazy talk. Now, can you imagine being a first century Jew in the local church and your entire notion of not just worship music, but worship in general and access to God is being flipped on its head. There's a second group. We'll call this the Gentile elites. Also typically going to be a minority in any local church, well-educated. 
only ever known secular music, have never known the sacrificial system, temple worship, uh, probably never heard or read or studied or sung the book of Psalms. They're not used to being in community with commoners and definitely not used to the possibility of a Gentile commoner or a Jew having spiritual authority over them as an elder or deacon in the church. The, the third group is what we'll call uh, Gentile commoners. This is probably the majority of people in most churches, again, except for maybe local churches in and around Jerusalem. They are culturally despised by Gentile elites and by Jews. Uh, the, the Gentile commoners, they are racist by nature. And they also, like the Gentile elites, they have never known Old Testament sacrificial systems. They have never studied Old Testament law or teaching. They've probably never sung a psalm in their entire life. Like this is all kind of brand new for them and they've only ever known secular music. So this is your typical demographic of an early first century church. Hypothetically, if you were the devil with the goal of making every church useless, would you seek to exploit these cultural and demographic differences? You better believe it. As we go through this message, um, probably everyone in this room in different ways, there'll be something we kind of poke at, and that's okay. Here's my question for you to answer at the end of the message. Have you fallen prey to this tactic? Have you been a source of division when it comes to worship music in either this or a past local church? Here's the challenge. Every congregation, they need to figure out how to come together and sing songs that bring God glory in a spirit of unity. They have to figure out how to bridge these cultural differences. And here is the counsel from the apostles. Ready? Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's it? That's it? Look, what do they sound like? Like, is there a meter we're supposed to sing them in? Like, what psalms? All the psalms? What about Jesus? I mean, your questions should arise at this moment. So what I want to do is I want to explore each of these categories one by one. Number one, psalms. Very simply, scripture set to music, particularly Old Testament scripture. And the Psalms are familiar, as we said, to the Jewish people, but, but I want you to catch this. What Paul is doing is mandating the Gentiles to at least sing some of the Jews' music. He, he's telling them, oh, you don't have a choice. You need to actually begin to integrate Psalms into your corporate worship. And it didn't matter if the Gentiles were like, I don't like the genre, I don't like the style, I don't understand, like... This is actually really good for the Gentiles because what they're doing as they sing Old Testament psalms is they are learning the history of their faith. Like Jesus didn't come out of nowhere. He was birthed out of the Jewish nation as the fulfillment of the promises of God as a part of a larger plan and strategy globally. So this is good. This is actually really good for their mind and their soul because we've talked about over the last two Sundays, music forms us and it shapes us. And when you take truth and you put it to melody, it sears these things into our souls. So Part of the conversion and training and discipleship process was you'd have, these, you'd have these Gentiles who knew nothing of the Old Testament, and they would be singing these psalms. Now, the psalms, I think they're a great gift to the church today 
Because what they inherently do is they put to rest so many of the common complaints that I hear about modern worship from Christians. Okay, warning. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say some things right now, and it's possible that they're gonna contradict something you think. Maybe I'm wrong. I think I'm gonna root these in scripture. But is it possible that maybe some of the ideas that you've historically had about music in church are wrong? Is it possible? Can we just say yes? Maybe this morning on the way in, you're talking to your spouse or your kids or your friends, and you said one of these things. The gospel already tells you that you're not perfect. Is your identity in being right all the time? Everybody? That was a little... I don't think you believe it yet, but, um, and I'm going to be honest, uh, I have said some of these. I believe them to the core, and I had to test everything with the word of God. Are you guys ready? All right. I hate when music repeats over and over and over and over again. Psalm 136.1, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Do you know how many times this psalm alone repeats that phrase? 26, for the love of God. <laughs> if I were to read that right now 26 times, after time number seven, you would, want, you, you would take me down. You'd be like, we're, we're done, we're over, we get the point. <laughs> and it's not the only psalm that does this. Repetition takes truth and it sears it into your soul. So I did a little bit of heart reflection. I was like, Michael, why does... Why does a lot of repetition kind of like annoy me a little bit? I thought about some things other people have said to me. So if I might poke a little bit, maybe this uh, will help you. I think there are three big reasons. There's like 80, but I came up with three that repetition bothers us. Repetition bothers me when I believe I have mastered a truth and I see myself as above it. I got it, nailed it, done for the love. Just, I got it. I've got it. Repetition bothers me Generally speaking, when I have a spirit of criticism. Actually, everything bothers me when I have a spirit of criticism, <laughs> let's be honest. <laughs> but number, th- number three is, is repetition bothers me when I sense the musicians are just being indulgent and they've stopped serving the body and they're more just kind of having fun. That's a legit thing that happens that's real. I hate when music repeats. Number two Worship songs shouldn't be I songs, but we songs. Sounds great, doesn't it? Feels logical, doesn't it? Except the vast majority of the Psalms are all written in the first person. Let's, I just picked one, but literally just start, again, if you're bored, start thumbing through the Psalms and try to find we Psalms. Most of them are I. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. The majority of the Psalms are I songs, not we songs. Now, are we songs bad? Not at all. Are I songs bad? Not at all. In fact, there's something about the model of the book of Psalms that makes our corporate worship deeply personal. And it's no less corporate because it's deeply personal. And the songwriters are modeling for us an approved, good, God-glorifying, acceptable way of worship. All right, number three. Why are we singing about me and my feelings? 
Worship music is supposed to all be about him. Vertical, period, on it, that's it. Here's just like a smattering, an overview of the emotions brought to the table that the people of God would sing in corporate worship. You ready? Here, take a breath. Loneliness, love, awe, sorrow, regret, contrition, discouragement, shame, exaltation, marveling, delight, joy, gladness, fear, anger, peace, grief, desire, hope, brokenheartedness, gratitude, zeal, pain, and confidence. The songwriters bring these to the table, not just as background concepts, but they are on the very forefront of the lyrics. And so when, when the people of Israel would sing, they would sing songs about all varying degrees of emotion, and it was good, and it was right. That yes, they sing theological truths, but they also sing them in the context of our human bodies and human experience. Here's number four. If the song doesn't mention Jesus or the cross, we shouldn't sing it. This, again, this feels right, except for none of the Psalms mention explicitly Jesus, the cross, the atoning blood of Christ, the second coming, the new heaven, the new earth, etc. Not there. And yet Paul still commands the early church to sing the Psalms. Now, if you have a, a New Testament worship diet that is pure Psalms, is that probably the best approach? Definitely not. Because we also need to be formed doctrinally in the way we sing about the full gospel, for sure. But, but do the Psalms have a place in our worship repertoire even though they don't mention Jesus or the cross? All right, number five. The songs are too wordy. I just want to go back to Psalm 119. 1,732 words. The songs are too short and they're too shallow. The number of simple, short, experiential, and emotional psalms is staggering. Apparently, it doesn't bother God in any way, shape, or form to have a simple, short, sweet, emotional, doctrinally sound song from our hearts collectively to his ears. It doesn't bother him. In fact, Apparently, he likes it. What's striking is that when you start finding songs in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation particularly, they're all super short, like one or two stanzas long. In fact, you have the living creatures. They're repeating one sentence over and over for all of eternity, and apparently God doesn't step back and say, too short, not deep enough. I don't really like your style. Do you know where each of these complaints come from? I'm tempted to say Satan, but I'm not. Because I actually don't think probably most of the people who are teaching these have bad motivations. What I find is for most of us, we're doing the best we can, right? But I will be honest, I have spent quite a few hours in the last couple months listening to a bunch of really, really preferential preachers demand their preferences be mandated on every church, and if they don't, then they're demonic. I can't tell you how many pastors and sermons I hear like this. But th these kind of ideas, they come from, and I want you to hear the whole sentence. Elitists who have been training Christians for the last 200 years that true worship, which glorifies God the most, sings one kind of song from one kind of genre, from one section of human history, 1750-ish to 1950-ish, few exceptions, 
using one dominant cultural expression. One of my concerns is that somehow we need to be able to pick up a philosophy of worship music and it needs to work for sub-Saharan Africa or the aboriginal people in Australia. And I do think that different cultures can have different expressions. And I think what the Psalms show us by particularly not telling us how the song sounded, but showing us the diversity of the kinds of songs that the people of God sang is that God doesn't mind a little bit of cultural diversity. He doesn't, he doesn't mind a little bit of, we'll say, linguistic diversity. He doesn't mind if there are some songs that are very verbose and very short, some that are deeply emotional, experientially oriented, and some that are just deeply theological, some that repeat a lot, and some that don't repeat anything. Like, it appears that the Lord has given us an unbelievable amount of freedom, and our job is to have a well-balanced diet. Here's the second category. Hymns. This is going to be fun. Theology set to music. This is easier for the educated to understand and sing, for sure. It's harder for illiterate, whether you're musically illiterate or otherwise. It's harder for the young, the spiritually immature, but necessary. Good melody makes difficult doctrine accessible. And this is why we pay particular attention to melodies that can stick in your brain so that we can pull the words out anytime we need. It's amazing. If you told me to simply just memorize a good, rich, deep hymn, I'd have a hard time doing it. But you put it to melody, and that song begins to stick in my brain, and we can recall all of the lyrics. Now, I cannot effectively teach on what Scripture means by hymns without clarifying a few details about modern hymns. You guys ready? Number one, modern hymns are just not what Paul is referring to here. He's not opposed to them by any stretch of the imagination. It's just not what he's talking about. What most people mean by hymns is this. Number one, music that I grew up with. Two, music that is in a book with notes so all can sing. And three, music that has stood the test of time. Like those are all great things, are they not? And, and we should sing music that has stood the test of time. And some of you, the songs you grew up with are incredible, and we should continue to sing those songs. So for modern hymn lovers, I want you to be encouraged. What Paul is saying isn't opposed to this. It's just not what he's talking about here explicitly. But number two, modern hymns were very controversial. Most people don't understand this. They somehow have this, I don't know, like innate sense that this is what the church has been singing for 2,000 years. I want you to listen to one historian. They wrote this about the style of music before modern hymns. Modern hymns really became very popular and began to integrate throughout American culture in like the 1750s and later, but not without much controversy. Here's what he says. In early colonial America, congregational singing consisted almost exclusively of metrical psalms. In this, as in most other matters, the colonies followed the lead of the mother country, who is England. So this idea of hymns was not how the American church and the English church worshipped. A metrical psalm, this is a little bit different, but metrical psalms, what they did is they would take a song that everybody knew, and that song would have a certain meter to it. And then what they would do, because everybody knew the melody, they would find a psalm with a similar meter, and they would just change the words. So you didn't have to learn the melody because you already knew it, and they would find different songs that people knew. 
in different psalms, and they would put them together by meter. So, happy birthday to you. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Like, that's, like, that's how we do it. So you don't have to learn the melody, and then it's already there, and they would take scripture, particularly the psalms, and they would sing those. And that is how, for a very long time, people worshiped. Christians. They had psalters, is what they called them. Modern hymns were really controversial. The younger generations came along, and they started writing music. And how do you think the older people felt about this? Oh, rage. Churches divide. Books written. Sermons preached. Youth, like, outright just, like, told you are sinning against God. And this brings me to my third, third point. Most modern hymnals are not 100% deeply theological, let alone filled with good theology. If you had a good, solid hymnal growing up, Praise God that you had pastors that protected you, number one. Years of work went into developing those hymnals, and for every good hymnal, there's a whole bunch of terrible hymnals out in the ether. And most of us think to ourselves, oh, the 200 or so hymns that we all know and we all sing, okay, for every good hymn, there's about a 1,000 terrible ones. And so I want you to imagine, right, all your church has ever sang are psalms, metrical psalms, that's it. And then these young people start coming in and they start writing their own music and it's not, it's not explicitly quoting the Bible, but it's using poetry and, and it's using actually different melodies. In fact, some of them were bar tunes. Like, you're gonna bring the devil's music into church? And you can, you can see how this would go. Here's some of the things that would be said. To the older generation, to the younger so what's wrong with the Psalms? Isn't singing God's word good enough for you to sing? Mic drop. Burned. They worked for 1,700 years. Why do you think it's okay to change now? Demons inspired these melodies. Why would you bring demonic melodies into the house of God? This is my favorite. Do you think you're better at writing music than God? It is a good impulse to want to protect the church. And the Apostle Paul does say, sing psalms. But that's not where he stops. Because the psalms don't tell us explicitly of the gospel. And so if we're going to form the next generation, the Apostle Paul also knows that we need to sing the gospel, which is why new songs are written called hymns and spiritual songs. And these are written with the word of God and the truth of the gospel in mind so that we are not just having a diet of only Old Testament psalms. Uh, number, number four, though, first century hymns were far less complex and typically focused on one or two doctrines, not multiple doctrines. So th this notion that the hymns of old before the 17th century, 18th century, we're super complex. That's actually just not how most of them are structured. In fact, I want to read to you a few from Scripture that most people, most theologians are attributing to, some, to be some sort of hymn. Luke chapter 2, 14. This is the angels. This is their song. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Or 1 Timothy three sixteen, thought to be a, a, a hymn of the early church. 
says he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Or in Revelation 4.8, the living creatures sing endlessly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And the Lord apparently doesn't ever say to them, that's all you got? You don't have more depth? You don't have more stanzas? He's apparently satisfied to receive this unending. Or the 24 elders sing endlessly in Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. With the birth of, of literacy and the printed word, like what a gift we have had over the last four centuries of even more developed, poetic, beautiful, memorable songs written to hand down the faith from one generation to another. They're beautiful. But, but at the same time, we have to step back and say, the scriptures don't teach that as exclusive and mandatory. It's a piece of the puzzle, but it's not the whole diet. And that brings us to the third category, which is spiritual songs. This is more testimony set to music. This is a response to what God has done where you tell the story of God's faithfulness in your life, usually in light of a specific situational or emotional context where you talk about where you were at spiritually and you talk about the Lord's intervention and how he lifted you up out of the muck and mire and you exalt some level of God's attributes, his goodness, his kindness, his mercy, his faithfulness. And these are songs motivated by the Holy Spirit in each one of us. And it seems what's interesting is that the Psalms actually model this, that there is this notion of spiritual songs where the Holy Spirit wells up music inside the heart of the psalmist. And they write about God's goodness and faithfulness experientially in their life. And so when you sing songs that are absolutely, can we just agree, rooted in truth and God's word, but also talk about the human experience and motions and God's salvation and intervention this is good, it's appropriate, and it's modeled by God's word. Last category, it's technically not in Colossians, but it's all throughout the Bible, and it's just new songs. And here, very simply, like if you wanted to hear music a long time ago, where did you go to hear music? You had to go, if you were an Old Testament Jew, you had to go to the temple. That's where the vast majority of new music was made. And, and over the last 2,000 years, particularly the first 1900, if you wanted to hear good new music, the vast majority of good new music was written by Christians and you could find it at the church. Isn't that awesome? Now here, here's what the Psalms say about new music. Psalm 33.3, sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Psalm 40, verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Psalm 98, 1, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Psalm 144, 9, I will sing a new song to you, O God, upon a 10-stringed harp, controversial, I will play to you. Psalm 149, 1, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. You get to Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, and it says they sang a new song, even in heaven it seems. New songs are being written and birthed by the Spirit of God and the people of God to give God glory. But new songs are inherently dangerous because for every one good new song, there's about 10,000 terrible ones like really bad songs, like 
probably good people-ish, like trying their best, but not doctrinally sound or really thinking carefully about protection of the body. And so we have a whole vetting process, by the way, by which songs have to go through. And so we have a team of people and we make sure that we agree with them. And then we want to make sure they're singable. We want to make sure they bring God glory. We want to make sure they're clear. And then if a song gets through, right, that's, that's good. If a song gets played twice, that's like a real one. Because sometimes we're like, we, we think it's going to be good. We think the church will respond well. And then it's like, nope, not at all. Like, just literally, like right now, you just sit there, like arms folded. And we're like, all right, well, maybe that's, maybe not, not the most helpful, but this is why every local church needs a vetting process to make sure that we love and serve you and that all of our music brings glory to God. All right, so what? I have three short so what's. Number one is champion musicians, production teams, and service planners. These people are awesome. What time did you get up today? They got here at 6 or 6.30 in the morning. They do every single week. And they came Wednesday night. And they practiced a whole bunch before that to get ready for practice. And then they had to, because we usually throw audibles between Wednesday and Sunday, had to relearn all the audibles that we just, that we just threw. Amen, musicians? Amen. Amen. You know this. This is your life. And when we call it and we say, we're not doing that song anymore. The preacher has changed the direction. Can you all learn a new song? And they go, we would love to. I've never met a musician or a service planner who said this. I'd like to create a service that causes division in the body and gives Satan a foothold. Just never heard it. I've never met a sound guy who said, I'd really like to produce muddled sound or a piercing sound that distracts people from worship and makes them all turn their heads and look back at me and stare. What you doing, man? Never heard it. I've never met a worship leader who has said, old people are dumb, leave them behind. Never met them. I mean, I know they're there. I know they exist somewhere, but they're not here. And the people who stand up front and work behind the scenes, they are seeking to bring God glory through their gifts and their time. And it is actually one of the most time-intensive ministries in the entire church week in and week out. What I find is that when most people understand the values that these teams have, empathy increases for what they do. Here are just a, a, a handful. We value celebrating God's goodness in the gospel. We value melody in words that sear truth into souls. We value music that sings scripture, theology, and testimony. We value musical styles that less younger Christians can understand, but content that all Christians can sing together. We value loving and flexible feedback so we can better serve our local church. We love the feedback that you give us. It's why we put these numbers up on the screen so you can ask questions and go deeper and share some of the thoughts that you guys have. We value the leaders who love and serve our local church faithfully. We have a negative value. You should probably know about it. We do not engage with sinful anger, demands, or threats. In fact, if you bring this to the table, conversation over, and our rule is whatever you're asking, no matter how good or noble, it's not happening because we don't work that way. But I'll tell you, anybody who has a spirit of cooperation to bring God glory and of kindness, man, we will navigate any discussion for the good of this body and to the glory of God. So what, number two? Let us blunt Satan's worship war strategy. I think there are four simple ways we can do this. Number one, appreciate the cultural and generational diversity of your local church. If you demand conformity of your preference and your musical styles, 
you will hate your local church, you will hate heaven, and you will fall right into Satan's strategy of division. Number two, defer to one another out of love, especially our elders. Deference does not mean silence. Deference does not mean do what you're told. Deference is about attitude, not silence. It is believing that your leaders have a desire to love you and serve you and want to hear from you. And it's a desire for you to speak what God has put in your heart in a way that brings God glory. And in that spirit, we have an awesome and incredible collaboration together as the people of God so that we might give him glory and serve our church. Here's the third one. Be uniquely tender to the younger generations. The style of music that we choose should never compromise the words, truth, the gospel, singability. But by and large, if you've been around and, and like worshiping for like a very long time, if you've been like, I don't know, a Christian for more than five or 10 years, in theory, you should be able to sing anywhere, anytime. I should be able to plop you in the middle of Mexico or in some different country. Like you, you should be probably past the point where you say something like, unless it is the style that I like, I cannot sing or worship. We should be past that. And, and so we, we, try to, we try to pick a genre of music generally that is singable for the younger generations or less mature people. Like my hope is when I'm in my 70s, 80s, and 90s, my expectation is they're not, the style is not going to be what it is today. And 20 years ago, it's different than it is today, et cetera. And that's fine. That's normal. But, but my commitment now is I, I want to... I want to serve the next generation, and I want to make worship as accessible for them as possible because I, I can worship anywhere, anytime, short of it not bringing God glory, being rooted in truth, and not being generally singable. I can deal with anything. But younger Christians, they don't, they don't actually have that maturity yet. They might be young in age, or they might be young in spiritual maturity. But I want, I want to be able to do something that actually serves them but doesn't compromise truth, singability, melody, or the searing of our souls with the word of God. Finally, number four, beware of teachers who demonize those who are different. They are everywhere. They are everywhere. And it is so challenging. When you go on YouTube and you download sermons on worship music, some of these people are so terrible. And they're not trying to be, but they literally have this framework. Unless you sing one kind of song, one kind of genre, and one kind of way, it is of the devil. And that is generally speaking how so much is out there on worship music. May we not bring that spirit of division and closed-mindedness on stuff the scriptures don't address into the local church. All right, finally, my last, so what? Thank you. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your encouragement, your sincere worship. Um, since I've been lead pastor, 2010 is when I started as lead pastor. I think maybe there's been one or two people who have like sinned, maybe, and I'm even having a hard time like remembering the conversations the cooperation we have been able to have with the body of Christ here has been absolutely incredible. And let's be clear, nobody gets everything they want. I don't, you don't, we don't. There is a compromise that happens in style, but what we all want is to bring God glory and to serve our local church. And so as I talk to my buddies who are pastors, I mean, this is a battle in churches. And one of the reasons I want to do this series is because I wanted to, I really just didn't want this to ever become an issue. Like, there's not a group of people that I'm picking on right now. Like, there's not, like, some group of, like, old people who are like, we got to fight back for hymns, or, like, some group of young people who are like, down with the whatever. We, like, there's nothing. Like, I just, we're not experiencing coups in this church. Praise God. 
And so lest you think anything I'm saying is about any kind of group of people that are creating issues, it's just not. So I, I can look at this church and say, holy smokes, like this has been an absolute joy and privilege to be able to lead in this season with a spirit of unity and men and, and women who have gone before me, I'm sure they fought these battles and I stand on their shoulders and I am eternally grateful for the spirit that they birthed here at Village Church. And so I'm just very thankful. I'm thankful to sit here and listen to you sing. If you're in the back, you can't quite hear the cacophony of voices up front, but I get to sit up here and just to hear all of your voices come together and to worship God, it is beautiful. And our worship team has the joy to sit up here and to hear you, all of you collectively, like your voices are focused on this team up here and that is so energizing for them to hear you and it makes them even wanna give God more glory as we do this together for the sake of him and to serve the people in this church. So thank you for that, appreciate that. I wanna invite our musicians to come up front and we're gonna spend some time singing together. And as we do, the first song that we're gonna sing is 10,000 Reasons. Do you guys remember that old song? (laughs) It's not old in the history of worship music. It's like barely just got written, oh my goodness. But it's funny how we think about old music, isn't it? It's actually very new, but it's rooted in Psalm 103. Psalm 103 starts off like this. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And I I love this because he's like talking to his soul, and it's almost like his soul doesn't want to do it today. And he's like, Oh no, you take everything that is within you and you bless him. Because you don't bless him based on how you feel today, you bless him because he's worth it. And and there's this theme actually through Psalm 103 I just want to show you because I think it's a great catalyst for worship, particularly when you don't want to. David sinned big. And David sinned so big that he should have been dethroned as king and he should have been killed. But God had mercy on him. And in the Psalm, he says this in verse two, bless the Lord, O my soul. Oh, don't forget his benefits who forgives all your iniquity. In verse 10, he says, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. In verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does the Lord remove our transgressions from us. Verse 14, for he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. And so David says to his soul, all that is within you, you bless him because here's the deal, you deserve death, you deserve separation from God and because of his mercy, you are still alive today. And so whoever you are today, wherever you're at, you have the ability to sing to God if you've trusted in Jesus Christ because he has literally removed your sins from you once for all and forever when you trusted in Jesus Christ. And so if you're, if you're like, ah, life's too hard, remember this. If Jesus had not died for you, you would be dead or in hell. And now today you have salvation because of Jesus Christ. And if today you're here and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, like you're like, ah, I've never made the decision. You literally can bless the Lord with all of your soul if you would trust in Christ today. And so if that's a decision you wanna make, I wanna ask you, do you believe that Jesus is your God and that he died for your sins, was raised from the dead? Do you believe that? Do you believe that you can't work your way to heaven but, but Jesus was good for you. Today, anybody who calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so if that's a decision you want to make today, even as you're singing, just pray, God, I love you. Would you forgive me? I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I'm done trying to work my way to heaven. Please save me and forgive me. And his promise to you is that you're forgiven. 
So if you've never made that decision in your heart, pray to God and then sing the words of this song and mean them. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. So I want to invite you to stand at this time and we're going to bless the Lord together.